Hello and welcome to the Guelph Politicast. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico. Today I talked to Claire Irwin, who is the co-chair of the Board of Directors for Pollination Guelph. We're picking up where we left off a couple of weeks ago with our countdown to Giving Tuesday, the holiday launch for charitable work in the lead up to Christmas. To get back into the giving, we're going to talk to a community group that's focused on the environment and a very specific aspect of environmental protection indeed. Guelph has its share of climate change fighters, parkland advocates, and tree-hugging urban forest lovers, but there is only one group that's trying to make the town a better place for bees and other pollinating insects. Helping the pollen flow is the topic of this week's Guelph Politicast. To begin, let's define what a pollinator is. According to the definition from the U.S. National Park Service, a pollinator is anything that helps carry pollen from the male part of the flower, the stamen, to the female part of the same or another flower, the stigma. The movement of pollen must occur for the plant to become fertilized and produce fruits, seeds, and younger plants. So when we're talking about pollinators, most people think about bees, but there are some species of beetles, flies, moths, and butterflies who are also pollinating insects. So we need pollen for things to grow, and we need insects to help move the pollen, so you can imagine why it was a pretty big deal when scientists started noticing that there weren't as many pollinating insects as there used to be. In terms of committing to local action, that's when Pollination Guelph was born. Pollination Guelph is an incorporated nonprofit that's dedicated to promoting awareness and understanding about pollinators and creating local sustainability goals and projects that promote protecting and increasing the pollinator population. There are a lot of P's in this episode. Their success is kind of easy to see when they've helped establish pollinator gardens at places like Hospice Wellington, Electra's Guelph Office, the University of Guelph Arboretum, and most notably, the large pollinator garden in Eastview Park. Pollination starts at home, too, with a lot of advice, research, planting, seeds, and other events that allow everyone to help develop better pollination practices in their own literal backyards. It's an impressive feat for an all-volunteer group like Pollination Guelph, which, because of COVID-19, hasn't even been able to hold their main fundraising event for almost three years now. What kind of help might they need this coming Giving Tuesday? That's what we will get to the bottom of on this week's Guelph Politicast, as Claire Irwin takes us through the origins of Pollination Guelph, the science of pollination, and how it relates to bigger environmental issues like the fight against climate change. We will also talk about their work to create more public and private pollinator gardens in Guelph, how we need to create more general insect-friendly environments in our lives, and why not all plants are pollinators and not all gardens are welcoming to pollinators. And finally, we will talk about how the pandemic has affected Pollination Guelph's programming, what kind of help they could use in the months ahead, and we answer the question about what gardening advocacy groups do in the winter months when there's precious little actual gardening. So I caught up with Claire Irwin last week via Zoom. Claire Irwin, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Why don't we start with, um, you know, how long has Pollination Guelph been around now? I mean, I, I feel like it's sort of been part of the environmental background in Guelph for a while. Uh, how, how close am I? <laughs> Depends on your time horizon, I guess, for a while, but it was founded in uh, 2009. 
Mm-hmm. That's when we got our charitable status. Um, and it got uh, sort of started a year or so before that by um, a group of people from in Guelph and the area, surrounding area who were uh, either because of professionally they're involved in the field or as a result of their interest in nature, uh, they had uh, become aware of the fact that there was a declining number of um, pollinating insects, bees particularly, and butterflies and others, um, and they were concerned about that. And they had um, held a conference to discuss this, and one of the outcomes of the conference was they decided to form an organization known afterwards as Pollination Guelph, which would um, uh, help to raise awareness and understanding of the issues and the importance of pollinating insects um, to our food supplies and uh, and also the sustainability of the natural environment. I mean, we we rely on them many pollinating insects for our food crops, but so do do uh, birds and other small mammals and other creatures that eat the fruits and seeds and nuts that form naturally in the environment. So um, clearly, they're very important. Uh, pollinating insects. So we wanted to raise the understanding of the issues that they were facing, the threats to them, and what the consequences could be, and also um, to let people know what they could do to try and counteract this alarming trend that was happening. And that's really been the focus of our work since then. Mm -hmm. Has things gotten uh, better? I mean, there were stories this past year, or maybe it was last year, about there being more uh, monarch butterflies around. I don't know if they technically count as a pollinator, so maybe you can correct me. But there, the, the awareness has become more and more obvious and, and more and more easy to access. Like people are really, like when people see a bee, they don't think, get rid of that bee. It's like, oh, there's a bee here. That's great. <laughs> it's, it, it, this, there, there does seem, you're, you're, the awareness you've tried to bring to it really seems to have paid off. But I mean, scientifically speaking, has it paid off? Um, uh, well, it, it's, when you say it's paid off in terms of increasing numbers of, of these insects, it's still really too early to tell. And it varies greatly by the species that you're talking about and from year to year, because many of these um, insects undergo natural fluctuations in numbers from one year to, a ne- to the next, mm-hmm. um, based on things like you know, the climate in that particular year and, and other factors that could um, could influence their numbers. Um, so, and the other thing, difficulty that we fa- was faced earlier on was that there was so little information about the numbers of these various insects. We didn't know, it's hard to know if something is going up or down in numbers if you don't really know what you started with. Um, so there has been much more work done now in terms of trying to actually um, do inventories and assess the numbers of, of these insects that are out there. So when you, you mentioned the monarch butterfly, and so clearly that has become um, a kind of a poster child for the issues of, of pollinators. Although, as you also noted, that butterflies are not really a very important pollinator. Bees mm. are much more important. But, mm-hmm. but still, it's served to bring, you know, focus people's attention on this. And there's such a... Know, they're so pretty, and they're so, and their life cycle is so interesting. You know, these the migratory factors and things like that. So, um, so as to whether the numbers are going up or down, I think the la- the there was maybe some slight change. It's like a sort of a graph where there's this little wiggle going up and down, um, mm. and the overall trend is still hard to predict. We we count them. We try to count them here. They also count them, of course, in the forests in Mexico where they overwinter. And the news from there often is not very good. Mm. They've, uh, you know, had, there's been fu- there's 
I mean, now there are far, far fewer now than there were, say, a couple of decades ago that overwinter there. So that's not good. Um, but, but there you, are some good, new, good news stories, too. Good. Because you mentioned the data. And I, as you were talking, I was thinking about it. It's like if we wanted to, you know, measuring something like temperature, um, and, you know, that's very important when you're we're talking about climate change. It's like seeing the chart of like the temperature over time. If we want to go back to November what's today, November 4th, November 4th, 1961, we know exactly what the weather was like that day because somebody was writing it down. However, if we wanted to know what the bee population was in the summer of 1961 and how that changed between the summer of 1960 and the summer of 1962, we don't have that information. No, no, in general, we, in general, we don't. Occasionally, there's something that can be helpful. For example, there was a, um, a study that was done uh, uh, on... Uh, rusty patch bumblebee or and other bumblebees um, that a student at the University of Guelph, I think did during the late 90s, 1990s. And so the data that was collected there was actually a useful comparator when it was the survey was repeated um, just a few years ago. And that really showed a you know, significant de decline in the, the numbers. But yes, you're right. Most of the time we don't have good data um, on which to base any of these uh, long-term data, which to, to base any assumptions about changes in numbers. And because, as I mentioned, there is these natural fluctuations from year to year, then when that is overlaid, it makes it even, you know, can make it even more complicated to interpret what information you do have. It's not necessarily weird if one year there aren't as many bees as there were the year before. But I mean, if you have five years where there are fewer and fewer bees, that's exactly. a concern. Exactly. Yeah. And one thing that has changed, I guess, you were mentioning about how people are becoming more aware of this issue, and it, that's certainly true, um, is that a growth in the many of the um, uh, uh, nature, nature contributions by, by people. So INAT, for example, an, an app where people can um, just take a picture of something and then send it in, and it documents what the species is, et cetera, where it was found. That. So that a lot of this... Um, has been a citizen scientist sort of data has become really helpful and important in terms of giving a, a better coverage for these surveys because people could be anywhere and providing this information. Whereas most of the time, if you're relying on a survey that somebody does over a period of a few few weeks or a few days or whatever, it's much more limited. So <laughs> yeah. The data. Yeah, the technology you know, and I've seen this, people do this on like sort of local Facebook groups where they see like a bird or something like, what is this bird? And it's because they took a picture of it. Exactly. Uh, you, yeah. you couldn't do that even, I was going to say, maybe, well, probably 10 years ago, you could do it. But, you know, even 20 years ago, um, you know, you, I saw this weird insect. It had six legs. It was brown. It, you get this vague <laughs> description that really doesn't help you scientifically speaking, because it, it just, we, we didn't have that ability to, to capture something on the spot with a yes. device. That's that. So the, you know, cell phones and cameras on cell phones has made an enormous difference to the, you know, the ability of citizen scientists to contribute to, to this sort of information. It's nice that cell phones have had a positive effect on something, but <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I guess looking at the the whole totality of environmental issues too, though, I mean, we, we talked very generally about climate change, but I mean, there, there are a myriad of factors going on with climate change, especially how climate change affects pollinators. Yeah. And I guess, is there, your group is specifically focused on the pollinator issue. And I guess, um, do you struggle having to, 
you know, make that a priority with the other 101 climate change and environmental priorities and, and having to like, do you have to find a way to like make your issue fit the big, broader issues of climate change? Um, well, it isn't a struggle to make it fit because in fact, many of the things, if, we, if uh, you did everything that we might suggest you do for the benefit of bees and butterflies and pollinators, you would in fact be benefiting the natural environment in general. It would benefit the birds. It would benefit other in, uh, small mammals. It would benefit us. You know, the, <laughs> so you know that we would have a more rewarding natural environment. So really, it all—it's all one interconnected system. And although we have a focus on you know, things that are good for bees, just because they are so they play they're an important species in the in the grand scheme of things because of their role as pollinators. Um, the, it, it really isn't, it isn't difficult. And in fact, we, you know, we work closely with other groups that have interests in, in other kinds of creatures or other aspects of ecological sustainability. Um, so it, it, it's not a hard sell. It, we, we, we're all in the same boat. <laughs> mm -hmm. Hopefully we're all rowing the same way. Just anecdotally, do you think this awareness, like I, I have a sister who's scared of spiders and, you, you know, you could explain to her all the live long day that scientifically like spiders are an asset because they eat stuff that we, you know, bugs that can hurt us. And, you know, spiders don't even like pay terribly that much attention to us. We're just part of the landscape to them. But there are people who have like serious like aversions to bugs. Does like awareness of the importance of like certain insects, do you think, help like people may be reticent to swat a mosquito now or a swat a, a bumblebee now than they, they would 10 years ago. That, that may be so. Um, and I think that it's, I mean, it, the fact that people develop these, these mindsets about certain creatures, I think it's part of a, um, you know, our culture that when you think about, you go to any children's book or think <laughs> at least historically, um, you know, those are always presented as something to be nasty and scary. And, you know, you've got to, so we've almost acculturated children to think that things, little things that crawl around, you know, are harmful. People who've had very little exposure to, um, uh, well, the, the, the Disneyland and all of this, you know, the <laughs> film, often, I mean, naturally, children are not scared of them. Mm. You, 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 probably, you probably all know somebody who's you know, got a child, small child, who's constantly ferreting around in the bushes and rubbing around in the ground and loves looking for creatures. But somewhere or other, the children pick up on the fact that adults think mm. that these creatures are, you know, to be avoided or scary or whatever. And then that just, that, that's, that set the tone. That's what we need to avoid. Mm -hmm. we, we should be just encouraging people to just see, okay, you may not want to spend a lot of time with creature x or y you know but nevertheless they're not in themselves scary and no threat to you and you know it's an association in people's minds i think with uh, um you know horror films and all that sort of thing <laughs> and Never. the same with bees you know people um really everybody is afraid of being being stung mm. what they don't realize is that you know most of the time the bees that are there to pollinate the the plants are, are not at all interested in people they're interested in the food that they're looking for. And, you know, we work amongst them in, a, in our gardens that, and uh, they, they pay us no attention. The only time you, you know, you might get stung is because you've tried to, you've hurt them or you've threatened them. But um, yeah, it's, it's that, that's, a, that's a hard battle to win. I think. Getting <laughs> I never really thought of the fly as anti-insect propaganda, but maybe we should. Um, 
looking to your group, um, you know, you you help organize a number of these pollinator gardens around Guelph. Uh, I guess first of all, can you explain like what a pollinator garden does and how it sort of promotes the the existence of pollinators and and you know the I mean how 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 does that how does all that work? Well, they take a st- we'll just take a step back from here and say that you know one of the um, when people realized that their pollinators were in difficulty, the numbers were declining and the varieties were declining. Um, it became clear after a while that probably one of the leading causes of that was loss of habitat, as we call it. So habitat for these creatures will be somewhere that you can find food, somewhere where that you can rest, somewhere you can let, make a nest, where you can raise your offspring. So there's, so there's food and in the essentials of life at the various stages that an insect may or may not go through, um, and somewhere to overwinter, to shelter, etc., so that's, and the reason that we were losing habitat is because we were losing all our natural areas. Mm. You know, we, the woods, woodlands and hedgerows, just wildflowers growing hickledy-pickledy wherever was, no, was gradually disappearing or quickly disappearing from our environment. So what we um, uh, were doing in the gardens that we have, and many of them are you know, intended as sort of demonstration gardens to show there are certain plants that are particularly helpful and useful to bees because they produce either a lot of nectar or, or the kind of pollen that they, they prefer. Many, many bees or many insects are, are, are generalists. They're not too fussy. Nectar is nectar. But there are some very specific relations between certain um, bees and, and, and butterflies, etc., and certain plants. And that's um, so what we try to do is get people to understand that there is this relationship and then when they are planting a garden to try and include as many as possible of the plants that are supportive of the insects that are native to this area to the bees and butterflies that tend to to occur around here mm-hmm. so and it's the same thing uh, for the kind of information uh, that we put out we have a lot of stuff on our website if you looked at it about how to plant gardens in support of pollinators and there are sort of certain key key uh, pieces of information, like remembering that they are, need to eat from the time they wake up in the spring or arrive back here if they migrate, like the monarch butterfly, um, until they do something to overwinter, either fly south or bury themselves under a pile of leaves or in a flower stalk or something. So they need food all through the growing season. And so you need to have something that is in bloom that's providing the nectar and the pollen throughout the season. So we we would give people guidance on what they can plant to have blooms at different times and different colors and sizes and growing conditions, whether it's wet conditions or dry, et cetera. So that's that's what we're trying to get at in there in terms of having a creating a garden or quote habitat that will meet the needs of these creatures. Right, because you know, you mentioned loss of habitat, and that certainly plays a part of it. But I mean, you know, we pay, you know, we bulldoze over somewhere to build a subdivision. It's not all buildings um, on that piece of land. We put in, you know, more grass. Um, people have like flower beds and flower gardens and things. But you know, there are things like people. There are things bees and and butterflies and other pollinators want to eat, and we, t- we kind of come in and choose things that we think are going to be pretty and they're going to look really nice in our f- flower boxes and things, but we don't necessarily think about um, nourishing the insects who come back and expect to find 
something they want to eat. That's right. And and you mentioned the grass. That's that of course has become the dominant feature of our urban and suburban uh, developments. And grass doesn't serve any useful purpose <laughs> as far as these insects are concerned. Um, so, <laughs> and as and again, as you were alluding to, when people go to the nurseries to buy plants, you know, for their garden, if they choose to put things in, the large proportion of the, what is available through the regular plant nurseries are not plants that are native to this area, and so therefore, if there's any relationship between the you know what the the, the pollinating insect is looking for and what you're offering in your garden, you know that they're not going to find it. We have a lot of plants here that came from Asia. In the, in the past that are really popular in the horticultural industry. Um, so often, even though there's lots of plants growing, it doesn't provide anything useful for the mm. native pollinators. Mm. Now, that being said, the that is changing. That's another positive thing that's happened is that even, well, I don't know if you would have noticed, but in um, the local Zares and things over the last Loblaws, they were actually selling native plants Interesting. This is the first time, you know, as um, which had which were being grown and and selected, etc., for ben, you know to be good for this area, this geographic area. Um, so things are changing, um, and more more of the nurseries are starting to sell you know native plants, or people are becoming aware of them and and actually asking for them. In the past, nobody asked, so they didn't know they weren't there. Um, so that that that's been a positive thing, but they, it's still. Um, we still got a way to go. Well, I'm, I'm glad that uh, some local businesses are sort of embracing that because that was going to be my next question. It's like if you want to uh, do your part at home, you know, to have a, like a plant that a bee is going to want to eat mm-hmm. um, or a flower that a bee is going to want to eat, you know, you have to know where to get that. And it's just it sounds like the trays and trays and trays of those perennials that you can get at just like about any store when it's like May or June just don't do the trick. Um, many of them don't know yeah. um, and but um, you know, and, and people I think there's you know the other thing we try to get people to understand is a little more about the kind of the life cycle of some of these organisms um, you know for example a butterfly you know going through the the cycle of having a new, an, an egg that hatches and then going through metamorphosis uh, to get the adult butterfly the caterpillar which people kind of you know, roll their eyes out and think it's a threat to some plant that they got in their garden. But the mm-hmm. caterpillars need to eat leaves, mm-hmm. um, need, in some cases, need leaves of specific plants. So again, if you really want to kind of create a habitat to attract as many of these insects and support as many of them as possible, you need to have a little understanding of both their life cycle and also their, their, the special needs that they do have. Right. I mean, for one, just to give a sort of common example, many people will say um, that though they have in their, their, they've done something for butterflies because they've got a butterfly bush in their garden. And it's true that the butterfly bush produces masses of nectar that the butterflies are really attracted to. Mm. But when that butterfly lays an egg and the egg emerges and becomes a caterpillar, that caterpillar is looking for food. So if it's a monarch butterfly, it's looking for milkweed plants. It will only eat mm-hmm. the leaves of milkweed plants. Interesting. So if you have no milkweed, you've immediately cut off the life cycle there because it can't find the food it needs, so the caterpillar will die. So, so you have to understand, you know, there's a need to kind of understand 
the needs of these creatures throughout their life their life cycle. Mm-hmm. Sounds a bit like building a house without a bathroom. You know, <laughs> you're, 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 you, you've you've created this lovely place for the insects to <laughs> to habitate, but you you haven't stocked it with you know a, a kitchen or a bathroom yes. or something. It's yes, yes, there's something missing. Yes. Yeah, yeah, be more or less critical. <laughs> and is that something like where you know your group comes in you like you help maintain these these wonderful gardens like the the big one in Eastview um but you know if you're someone who just has like a, a garden in your backyard and you kind of want to do what you can is mm-hmm. is you know is there advice you you can give absolutely i mean uh, and that's one of the things normally and we do a lot of public education um, normally we would be out in the community attending any events related to sort of gardening or the natural world and that's something obviously we haven't for, with COVID going on but the, the best alternative to that is our website where we have lots of resources and lists of, of documents that can be ha- downloaded that would give you a list of plants for, for the particular kind of garden that you might want to create or rain garden or regular garden etc. Um, so there's lots of information on our website and people can um, you know, easily, I think if they access that, they have a good idea of what they might want to plant. Well, we kind of walked right up to it. So, you know, the pandemic has affected a lot of community groups, a lot of nonprofits. You know, your group is no different. So, I mean, how has you know the pandemic kind of set pollination wealth back, if if it set it back? Yeah. Um, well, I think it's particularly in the area of the work we were doing related to public education. Mm. Um, because in addition to, as I said, us going out into the community to attend events or putting, and, and so we have fully focused on putting as much information as possible on our website. One thing we would we have done for many years is have an annual symposium, mm. in, usually in March, which has become you know a very popular sort of uh, go-to event with a lot of invited speakers, etc. So we haven't been able to do that since uh, well, for several years now. Um, what we have done instead is have um, uh, a speaker series um, now I, that that we've run for the la- last couple of years. So going forward next year, it'll probably be a similar kind of thing because it looks we cannot be sure that if we organise <laughs> an in-person event, and that's where everybody you know, obviously wants to get back to, um, you know, we will be able to go ahead with it. Yeah. Um, so it has impacted the you know public education thing. Although that being said. Everybody, this is a, everybody has had to shift to a different way of doing things. So I think people in general have gotten used to the idea that, you know, they've got to go and look for this stuff on people's websites. It's going to be um, in those sorts of medium now, media now, uh, on Facebook or whatever, whatever people are using to disseminate information as opposed to this in-person public stuff, which is a, which is a pity. Yeah. But the, the, so we as an organization, of course, have, are, and we're a very small organization, but you know, uh, we have a board that meets meets monthly. We've been meeting on Zoom now for you know, a year or so. Um, <laughs> and so this, so we're missing the public, you know, the kind of ease of kind of getting together to do things. Fortunately, I mean, our other main activity, and, and this is where volunteers that we use all the time, I mean, we, we have no paid staff. Mm. Um, so we're just a board of eight people and then the rest is done so we have the board which is a very hands-on board and then volunteers that help us Um, so we because a lot of what we do is outside 
we were able, with all the restrictions of COVID, to actually um, organize it so the volunteers could help with maintaining and planting our gardens. So that was one positive thing that we had going for us um, when uh, over the last couple of years. So, I mean, in a, in a sense, we're kind of talking about this at the wrong end of the year, but, you mm. know, what, what, what kind of activities or things do you, does your group do in like the winter months when, you know, there's nothing blooming and there are no insects around and, right. you know, what, 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 what are you going to be up to for the next couple of months? Well, normally it, this would be when we would really be getting down to planning our symposium because <laughs> we usually hold it in March. So that sort of time, time. Um, so, and it you know, takes us, as you will probably understand, a fair amount of time and energy to get things organized, something event like that. So um, basically we, the winter is a time for us to sort of do all of the things like creating more materials to put on our website and go, we would be giving, um, giving talks because again, over the winter time, there are lots of groups that, um, you know, they, they can't get out in the garden either, but they, so they <laughs> want a speaker to come and talk to them about what they could be could be doing. So we would usually do a, you know, several of those by invitation. So that too, we haven't, you know, there's been less of, but because what there has been has been done on Zoom or something like that. Um, so there's a lot, there's no shortage of things to do over the winter in terms of, and also planning, you know, we will be planning um, what, what we're going to be planting and ordering and that sort of thing for, for the springtime. Um, so it, it's slower, of course, but it's not, it's, it's a welcome, and and if you know particularly in terms of doing sort of office-based stuff or the you know computer-based stuff so i mean obviously we're talking because you know it's giving tuesday at the end of the month and um you know people are looking for ways they can help out so i mean what kind of helper are you looking for uh whether it's financial or volunteer-based or donations uh you know what 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 kind of what kind of help are you looking for from people all of the work that we do we have we raise the money ourselves through either donations that's a significant part we also um, raise money through uh, the sale of some books and um, you may have seen our signs pollinator habitat signs that people can buy and put in their front yards and things like that to to explain what it is that they're doing there so we we, um, do that and we raise if for the symposium, we would get sponsorships as well. Um, so that's another in, you know, important source of, of revenue for us. Um, so we, it's, um, and I guess the other thing, well, the other thing we have done um, is, is uh, apply for grants as well. If we've got a specific, and that's, we did a lot more, did a lot of that, for example, in, we have a garden at Hospice Wellington. I don't sure if you've seen that. We, mm-hmm. we landscaped all of the, with their permission, you know, uh, uh, all of the, the grounds around the, the hospice. And that we did initially by getting grants, applying for grants for local foundations. Um, and then the Gosling Foundation gave us a, a significant contribution, which enabled us to kind of complete the, the gardens and support the maintenance of them for a while. So, um, so yes, sponsorships and donations from organizations, foundations, I think is really important to us. Um, but the uh, yes, so we, and the other support um, is 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 the manpass kind of support that we we need, and um, we have a, a very large roster of people with whom we communicate, who get our newsletters and that sort of thing. Um, but we always need more people who 
were interested in kind of hands-on volunteering, either to help with looking after our the gardens that we we have maintained that we maintain. Um, because what we've tried to to do over the last few years is to shift more towards helping other organisations to put their own put their gardens in and maintain them themselves. Mm-hmm. Rather than because there's a limit to how you know what we can do in terms with our own volunteers, um, given the amount of the gardens you already have in existence. So we provide a lot of it, but we try to provide advice and also plants. Um, we because our gardens, like the hospice garden, things are getting quite it's well established. We um we have plants there that we need to be dividing them, and so we've been able to give away or help people who want to start a garden somewhere. Um, an organization that's wanting or a school that's wanting to start a, a garden uh, we can often donate plants for them but yes so that, that doesn't help us raise funds but <laughs> <laughs> it helps other people not have to raise as much funds <laughs> but yeah so we you know we, we do need as as much support as we can get and donations are particularly valuable to us in terms of them being able to go and you know, buy plant material or whatever it is that we're trying to do develop our gardens and guelph is a bee city so we have a reputation to maintain yes yes that's right yeah (laughs) (laughs) well claire erin it was so great to talk to you and uh best of luck with the pollinating and uh i hope uh, i hope people will uh give you guys a look and and if they can help out they will so thank you so much great thank you good to talk with you And once again, that was Claire Irwin. There are lots of opportunities to help out with Pollination Guelph, including resources and advice about planting pollinator gardens. And you can find all of that out at pollinationguelph.ca. You can also follow Pollination Guelph on social media on Facebook at pollination-guelph and on Twitter and Instagram at pollinateguelph, all one word. And that is it for this edition of the Guelph Politicast. The music for the Guelph Politicast comes from KPM Classics and Sid Dale. The Guelph Politicast is usually recorded at CFRU, Guelph Campus and Community Radio, out of the University of Guelph. And to learn more about CFRU, go to CFRU.ca. You can download the Guelph Politicast every Wednesday from Apple, Stitcher, Google, and Spotify. And when you subscribe to the Guelph Politicast channel, you will get an episode of Open Sources Guelph on Mondays and an episode of End Credits on Fridays. You can follow Guelph Politico on social media at Guelph Politico on Twitter and at Politico Guelph on Facebook. You can follow me at Adam A. Donaldson on Twitter and Instagram, and you can send me an email at adamadonaldson at gmail.com. If you'd like to help financially support the work of Guelph Politico, you can also find all that information at guelphpolitico.ca slash donate. And for all the latest local political news, check out guelphpolitico.ca, where there will be a new episode of the show for you this time next week. And until then, we will see you next time. 